before COVID hit, I was preaching through the book of Philippians verse by verse. And then COVID hit and things changed. I want to return to that and hit some of those themes and we will go back to that. Before I start that, I want to recognize uh, someone today, Brother Calvin Duell. Brother Calvin, I want you to stand up right there. Thank you, Juanita. There you go. Stand up, Calvin. Yeah, that's you. This coming week, Brother Calvin will be 99 years old. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Stay standing. 99 years old. That's something, isn't it? That's amazing. Let's sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Brother Calvin. Brother Calvin. Happy birthday to you. Amen. Amen. Yes, sir. God bless you, my friend Calvin. He's the soul of our church, isn't he? I love that brother. Thank you, Calvin. I was praying for him this week, and uh, I had this thought that uh, I believe this is right, that when I came to this church that he was one year younger than I am right now. So what a, what a wonderful thing to be able to know him for all of these years. My friend, Brother Calvin, God bless him. We'll look at Brother, uh, uh, Brother Calvin. We'll look at Brother Calvin after the service. We'll look at our text in just a moment in Philippians 1. I want to tell you a story as we uh, open the message this morning. When I was in Bible college, I've told you this story before, but I want to twist it just a little bit here. Word uh, began to spread around campus. I was in my dormitory room. It was in the early afternoon that uh, a bad car accident had happened just one street over. And one of our faculty members and his wife had been in it. And a crowd had gathered and uh, I left my room and went there. By the time I got there, the ambulance had already come and taken them away. The car was upside down. Uh, There was blood that had pooled on the concrete there. It was the dean of our seminary, a very prominent leader in the school, Douglas Cravens. And his wife was killed upon impact and he was in the hospital for a long time. Very godly man, a very precious man. When he came back uh, to work, which was months later, Dr. Robertson asked him to speak to the uh, student body. We had on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, three days a week, we had chapel at 10 o'clock. And I love chapel from 10 to 10.50. Some of the greatest preachers in America and our faculty members and different preachers and teachers, they taught us and exhorted us with the Word of God. And so this, this sainted man, this precious man of God, stood up and he really gave a testimony about some things he'd learned through that accident. But he made a statement that touched me deeply. And he said this, he said, young people speaking of his wife, He said, you never miss the water till the well runs dry. 
You never miss the water till the well runs dry. Of course, he was referring to the loss of his wife. And well, that's true, isn't it? We assume upon our blessings until they're gone. And then when we're gone, it's too late. We realize, boy, we had it good. We had it good. I want to to tweak that statement and change it just a little bit. You never miss the well until the water runs dry. I want to change it for the sake of the message this morning. You never miss unity until it's gone. You never miss unity until it's gone. I want to preach to you this morning and teach you from the Bible on this subject, and it's not going to have... An outline. This is really just kind of an introductory to the subject, but uh, have some Bible verses and some context here on the importance of unity. The importance of unity. As long as your home is in unity, uh, you tend over time to take it for granted. As long as things are going well at work, Until there's conflict, you tend to take it for granted. As long as things at church are going well and there's no conflict, you take it for granted. But all of a sudden when the cracks begin to show and division begins to seep in, all of a sudden what was easy becomes hard And what was safe and joyful and happy and God had liberty to work. And now an environment that was sweet becomes negative and Satan begins to work. And there's an air of destruction and you miss what you had. You don't enjoy it anymore. The importance of unity. This is really not a a corrective message. It's just a, a preventive message. But it's one in the Word of God here, and we want to look at. I read a read a funny message, not a message story this week, about a family that was from New York City, and they wanted to do something different. So the father moved his family out west, and he said, "We're going to uh, raise cattle." And so they they bought a, a ranch out west and established the ranch and. So the discussion came up, what are we going to call this ranch? And so some friends from New York State came, and they visited the family, and they asked the rancher, they said, what did you guys decide to call this ranch? They had only been there for a couple of months and so forth. And so uh, the rancher, the, the new rancher that had just come there, told his friends, he said, well, I wanted to name it the Bar J, the Bar J. My wife wanted to name it the Susie Q. My oldest boy, he wanted to name it the Flying W. My youngest boy, he wanted to name it the Lazy Y. None of us could agree. So we're getting the sign made now to put over the over the entrance there. So we just decided to call it the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y. And, and his buddy, his friend said, well, I haven't seen any of your cattle. Where's the cattle? 
He said, well, none of them have survived the branding yet. And it's tough. It's tough to survive an environment of conflict and dissension and negativity. People run from it, whether it's in a home, whether it's in a church or whether it's at work. You know, people will go to a peaceful place of employment as long as there's there's joy Even if it's not a Christian environment, if there's peace, they'll they'll go for lower pay. I ask you to turn to Philippians 1. The church at Philippi was a strong church. It was was a healthy church. When Paul wrote to them, there was nothing to correct. They didn't have any doctrinal trouble. There were no moral problems. In Philippians chapter 1, notice in verse 3. Philippians chapter 1 in verse 3. Paul said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every time I think about you, you bring joy and gratitude to my heart. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So there were no theological problems. There was no moral issues. It was a thank you note. Uh, He was in prison in Rome, and they had taken an offering. He had established that church as a church planner. And they had taken an offering, and there was one of Paul's associates, a man named Epaphroditus. And he had come all the way to Rome and given him some money, a cash offering that they had taken up for Paul. Now, that he needed the money because he was in prison. But there was one flaw that the church had, one specific flaw. And if you look with me in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, I want you to see one of the problems that they had here. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2. Notice what he says here. He says, I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. So when Epaphroditus returned from the church and he gave Paul the offering, he said, well, Paul, I need to talk to you. There, I've got a, one problem. That there's these two ladies and they're having some conflict in the church. There's some division. There's some contention And it was so bad that it had become public within the church. And so he had to give them this report. And it was so bad that when Paul wrote the thank you note that he had to mention their names publicly. Now he didn't do that very often. In fact, when he did it, it was usually people that were not saved that were trying to divide the church. Uh, Would you let me talk? I'll be glad to talk to you after church. Thank you. I can talk to you after church. That'll be fine. I can talk to you after church. And Robert can be Robert can help me here. All right. Thank you so much. And you folks can be my prayer warriors right now if you would. And so they had this division this division between uh, Father help me, help my mind, help our people. Lord, you love us. You love this dear lady. I pray that you would bless us and protect us and help her. Uh, you know the situation. We don't. 
We love you with all of our heart. Thank you for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This church belongs to you, not us. I pray that you would give us a good service now. In Jesus' name, amen. So these two ladies here, Euodius and Syntyche, he names their names. Now here's what's unusual. The name Euodius uh, means fragrance. And the name Syntyche, the root word, means to welcome or to greet or to hug. Now you talk about opposites. Uh, her name, Euodius, had turned to stench rather than fragrance. And Syntyche's name, rather than greet and welcome, had come to rejection. It's funny how, how your name or your emphasis can change from, from helping and blessing. And Satan wants to destroy a church primarily by two methods, externally and internally. Now, <clears throat> he tries to destroy a church externally by, by persecution. And you'll see more and more of that coming on by the culture, um, by the enemy, and so forth. But then he tries to destroy a church internally by two ways. Number one, by false teaching. And Paul deals with that a little bit in chapter 3, the first three verses there. Not much. He addresses some of the false teachers of Judaizers who believed in work salvation. But then not only by false teaching, but also by division. And he deals with that there in verse 2 with these ladies. And you see this illustrated. In fact, uh, these three topics he deals with all the time. Persecution, false teaching, and division. They're themes over and over and over in the Bible, as Paul writes to us. Persecution, false teaching, false teaching, and division. And these are things that you need to watch for uh, in a church and how in your reactions to them. So if he can't destroy us with persecution, then he will come at us with division. Now watch this. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5 that Satan is like a roaring lion. That's external. Everybody hears the lion roar. But he comes also like a serpent, like a snake. That's internal. That's quiet. When a snake bites you, it's usually a surprise. If Satan cannot destroy you externally like a roaring lion, he comes like a sneaky serpent. And this is so often the way he does it with, with division. And so Paul is pleading with them, with these ladies and with the church, you need to deal with this. You need to take care of this. And I, I want to just show you a couple of verses here as we go through Philippians and some other verses. I hope you'll write some things down. Uh, but notice in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, if you would, notice his, his heartfelt plea for unity. And, and what unity is, we'll define this in a moment. But notice this plea in Philippians 1.27. Only let your conversation, that is your lifestyle, be as it becometh, as appropriate to the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you because he's in prison, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Now watch this, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, you can't miss a unity there. One spirit, one mind, striving together. Now, 
They're doing this for the gospel. One spirit, one mind, striving together. You cannot do the ministry, you cannot accomplish the purpose of the church without one mind, without one spirit, without striving together. And it's not just striving, sometimes we strive against one another. Doctrinal orthodoxy is no guarantee of unity. You can sign a doctrinal statement and not be together. I've told you before that the devil has a pure doctrinal statement. He believes the truth. Zeal is no guarantee of unity. Past blessings are no guarantee of unity. Oh, do you remember our past? In fact, sometimes that can be a a cause of dissension. Division is often centered around, and most of the time, I say often, most of the time, centered around silly things, petty things. Now, it's not to the person. But in the big picture, and when we get to heaven, we're going to realize how many people are in hell because of the pettiness of professing, and listen to the way I say this, professing, professing Christians. Warren Wiersbe, uh, the great writer and pastor, wrote about a group of ladies that got upset in a church that he pastored. He was pastoring this church. And they brought a lawsuit against the church because the church asked them to move from a Sunday school class that they had because the church was beginning to grow. And so uh, the children needed a place to move, to, to have a bigger and a better class, and they wanted to move the children there. And the lady said, we, we are not going to move. And they said, you need to move. And they, these ladies... They violated the Word of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and they brought a lawsuit against the church because the leaders were asking them to move their class. Now, that is not one mind, that's not one spirit, and it is not striving together for the faith of the gospel. I read about a church, and these are actual stories that split, the church split over which side of the auditorium that the church, uh, that the church, my mind's a little afraid right now, over which side that the, of the church that the piano would be placed. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine the impact or the lack of impact that this church is making on the world when they hear about this? Can you imagine attending their meetings, their business meetings, And the kind of stories they tell. Can you imagine the children that go to that church? And if they go to church, and I will tell you that the bunch of them don't. I I won't delve into it too deeply, but I went to business meetings like that when I was a boy. It wasn't over the piano. It was over other silly things like that. And I remember grown men standing and yelling and arguing. And debating. Sometimes it's not what you say. It's, it's the tone of voice that you use. And it impacted me. And by the grace of God, I, I'm still in church. But, but my friends, 
When I say my friends, the bulk of my friends, the vast bulk of my friends are not in church. And it's related to those things that I'm talking about today. Unity is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing for good or for evil. The Bible talks in Genesis chapter 11 when evil men were trying to build a tower. They called it the Tower of of Babel. And uh, it had an anti-God philosophy. We won't go into all the purposes. That's not my purpose for the message. But as they began to build this anti-God town with this anti-God symbol that represented what they believed was against God. In Genesis chapter 11 and verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. Notice what God said. These people are one. Now, these are ungodly people. They're unified. And they all have one language. Now, this is one of the matters of unity. One of the characteristics of unity is the way they speak. Their unity in their language. And this they began to do. And now nothing, notice what the Lord said. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Nothing will be restrained from them, evil people, because of their unity. And I would say the same thing is true on the side of good. Nothing can be restrained from a mom and dad whose hearts are in unity for their kids. Matthew 18 talks about praying in unity for your kids. Nothing can be restrained from a church that is harnessed as Philippians 1.27 in one mind and one spirit striving together for the faith of the gospel. Nothing can be restrained from that. In sports, a team that's in unity will beat a team that's more talented. Giftedness is, is no assuredness that you're going to win. It's who has one heart. You take a group, whether it's a, a church or a group at work or a team, a, a small group at work that pursues a single objective is more powerful than another group that may be more gifted or more intellectual working on the same, same goal because they're not in harmony. They're not together. Harmony is a very powerful, powerful matter. There must be a focus. There must be, there must be unity. The, the root word of unity is uni, one, one focus, one heart. We'll see this as we delve into this. Winston Churchill made a powerful statement. He said, when there is no enemy within, the enemies outside cannot hurt you. When there is no enemy within, the enemies outside cannot hurt you. You know, in the old days, I used to like westerns when I was a little boy and wagon train, these old time movies. And they would be attacked. Do you remember what they would say? Circle the wagons. And now that's a statement that people use. But the statement came from the fact that they're trying to protect people that are attacking them. Circle the wagons. It means, hey, we're going to protect our family. We're going to protect our church. We're going to protect people. 
where there is no enemy within, the enemies outside cannot hurt you. That, here's the idea. We're going to work on us. We're going to work on our hearts. It's not us and them. That's not the issue. It's what do I need to do? What do I need to work on? Unity is often misunderstood because we don't understand it. We think it's just trying to pull someone over over to our side. You know, those that are leaders today, and sometimes we, as coaches or, or bosses or spiritual leaders or whatever, we we can't get people on the, the same page. And I think sometimes it's because we have been trained wrong, we've had wrong models or whatever. The worst model is this, is you think that unity can be forced or or coerced. You can require it. Well, you put me in charge of that group. I'll show you. Okay. Have at it. You do that at work. They'll work for you about six months or a year, and then they're finding an exit. You cannot... Force, impose, nobody's going to give you their heart. No, they're not. And by the way, the same thing is true in a church. I heard one of the men that has helped me in my life in, in different areas, he made a statement one time years ago, and he was talking about leadership, and he said this, he said, if people don't like you, they won't follow you. Now, this doesn't mean your goal is to get around trying to make people like you. But the principle is this. Leadership is not just about being out in front of people, passing out objectives. There's a relational component in leadership. And he's dead on. There is a leading aspect, but there is a component that after a while that, yeah, I'll follow you. But, man, you're beating me to death. If you're type A, if you're choleric, you get things done, but you leave all these bodies in your wake. After a while, they're switching. They're, they're changing horses. You, you, you've got to learn something. You need to learn the fruit of the Spirit. God can use your gift. He can use your bent. But you need to learn to care for people. People don't care how much you know. Do you know how much you care? There's a balance in all of this. Unity is not forced. It's not coerced. Another thing about unity that's misunderstood, unity is not when everybody has the same characteristics. It's not when you walk into an environment and everybody is the same. That's not unity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, one analogy that God gives of the church is that we are a body. And as a body, each part of the body has a different function. Different parts of the body have different strengths and so forth. And uh, you have a, a gift, you have a different function, and the body has is diverse. It's diverse in gifts, it's diverse in personality. Those of you who have different personalities, some are quiet, some are expressive. And it's dangerous when you go around trying to change everybody's personality. And when you see through your gift, whatever your dominant gift is, you want everybody to become like you. It's a dangerous thing. 
But when you have diversity, and listen, and you have maturity, then you have unity. But when you have diversity, you do not have maturity, there's no unity, there's chaos. There must be maturity. This is one reason, this is one reason that I preach so much on maturity that you will grow. Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 4. When you grow and you develop, you don't have to preach a lot on unity. It's a byproduct. And listen carefully. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity is when everybody's the same. We get the word uniform from it. You walk into a restaurant or you walk into a company, everybody has the same uniform on, and and you deceptively think, well, externally, everybody has the same lingo, they have the same appearance, they look the same, so they are in unity. Unity is different than uniformity. It's not the same. My goal is not for you to be like me, it's, it's for you to be like Jesus. My goal is not for my kids to be like me. I want them to be like Jesus. Now, there are some things I think they can learn from me and their mom. But it's not about uniformity. I don't think it's healthy when you walk into a church and everybody looks the same. God gave the church diversity, but I don't think it's healthy for church not to be mature. That's not healthy. I heard a a great illustration of this a few weeks ago when a preacher, he was talking about uh, one of his kids finally got a job. And uh, he said they they went to uh, Chick-fil-A, came home and said, Dad, I I got the job. So they got hired on at Chick-fil-A and the father was a pastor. He said, I was so excited. They finally got this job. They're working at Chick-fil-A. They're working at a Christian company. And she's going to learn to say my pleasure. And she's going to say it at home. And she got this job at a Christian company. He was so excited. And so after a few weeks, um, he asked her, he said, well, how's it going at Chick-fil-A? I'm so glad that you have this job working with all of these Christians. And it's a Christian company. She just kind of looked at him like he was an alien. You know, she's young, 15, 16-year-old. She said, Daddy, it's not like that. They just say, my pleasure. She said, now, some of them really mean But she said, Daddy, some of those people smoke and some of them cuss. And some of them tell dirty stories. She said, some of them are Christians, but some of them aren't. What you see externally is not what you get. My pleasure. I'm not trying to knock Chick-fil-A. I think sometimes you walk into church and you see externalism. You say, oh, oh, this looks good. Sometimes what you see isn't what, it's not what you get. Unity is not uniformity. It is not external. Listen, unity does not result 
from external characteristics. It is, it is not required. It is not shaped. Listen carefully. Unity is a result of internal matters of the heart and the mind. Look in your Bible. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Philippians 2, 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ. The word consolation means encouragement. If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit. Notice that, in Christ of the Spirit. He's talking in this whole section about characteristics of unity. And he says these matters are matters that come in Christ. That is, people that are in Christ. They're Christians. They're saved. It's of the Spirit. They are produced of the Holy Spirit. They're based on internal factors, not external factors. You, you do not create unity externally. It's not artificial. It's a byproduct of other things. You can have the best organization and flow charts and not have unity in an organization or a church. You can have people agreeing to the same doctrinal statement in the church and believe the same things intellectually. And not have unity because their heart is not in alignment and submitted to the Lordship of Christ. You can have people that look alike and use the same terminology in a church and be divided and cause divisions in a church. Listen, I've seen it happen dozens and dozens of times. Unity is possible because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And in us. And because of that, I'm able to love people. Not externally, I show forth expressions of love because my heart is changed. I love them. You can't have unity if you don't love people. I'm able to forgive people. You're never going to have unity if you don't forgive because you're going to be transgressed against. Because... I'm able to be patient. You can't have unity if you're not able to forbear people. People are going to get on your nerves in in the family, at your work, in the church. And the Holy Spirit of God, the grace of God, give you the desire and the, the ability. And listen, the willingness to cooperate with other people that are different than you and sometimes that are great against you. So that you can accomplish a greater cause. That's what this is about. Unity is not solved. Disunity is not solved by rules and threats and motivation. If you have kids, you know this. Now you get along. Get up in that room and get along. It doesn't work, does it? I can remember telling my kids so many times, listen, you have a problem with your heart. You have a problem in your heart. And disunity is an issue of the heart. You can can threat them. And you can dangle carrots and use rods, whether they're verbal rods. You can try to motivate them. But until a person is submitted to the authority and the lordship of Christ and have the life of God flowing through them, they will never experience 
unity because it's what's happening in your heart, in your mind, and then you have the actions and the words that come in alignment with that. This is why it's such a precious, a precious quality. It's very rare. Look in your Bible with me. I want you to look at, again, please, look at Philippians one twenty-seven. I want to highlight some things. Look at this. Philippians one twenty-seven. Look at the last part of the verse. That you stand fast in one spirit. And he's talking to a group of people. So this group is to have one. Many people have one spirit, one mind, and strive together for the faith of of the gospel. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. Philippians 2 and verse 2. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. He's talking to this group of Christians. I want you to be like-minded. Having the same love. Having one accord. One mind. You see this? Like-minded. One mind. One heart. One accord. He's talking here about unity. Now, whether it's two or whether it's 200 or 2,000, we live in a, in a country that's divided today. And you can't, you can't hug a rattlesnake. But I'm telling you, there are some things that we need not be disunified over. There are some things that are worth fighting over. I told in Sunday school, we're on the cusp of a civil war in our nation. But we cannot, we cannot have this in our churches and in our homes. We cannot do this in our church and our families. There must be unity. There must be one accord, one mind. And don't, listen, don't let what's going on in the world affect your walk with God. Don't let it rob your sweet spirit with your wife and your kids where you're angry at what's going on. It's it's interesting in Philippians chapter 4. I didn't point this out a while ago. Notice what he said to these ladies in Philippians chapter 4. Notice in verse 2, Philippians 4, 2. I beseech you, Odious, beseech Syntyche, that they, look at this, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Isn't that interesting? This is, this is where the battleground is in your heart. It's in your thinking. He said, ladies, here's your problem. It's in your mind. You don't have the same mind. Now, they had some external expressions, but the conflict was in their mind. It was in their rights. It was in their pride. It was in their unwillingness to repent. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. Yeah, but you don't know the whole story. Yeah, but let me, let me give my side. And as long as you cling to, to, to whatever your perspective is, well, this is a hill upon which to die. We see this in churches so often. I read a magazine article about these superstar tenors, you know, sometimes they'll travel around and do these concerts and so forth. I've watched some of them on uh, YouTube before. Uh, Carreras, Domingo, and Pavarotti. And these three guys were going around doing these concerts and very powerful singers. They were singing in Los Angeles. And a reporter was interviewing them and he was trying to uh, 
get them to talk about the competitiveness of, because they were such great soloists. And now they were singing as a trio. Now they were having to, to cooperate. They weren't just, it wasn't featuring anyone. It was a trio. And he kept trying to press that issue, trying to get an angle on the story. And one of them, uh, Domingo, here's, here's what he said. Listen to this quote. I like this. In response to the reporter trying to get a story to say, yeah, but you guys are soloists. Aren't you competitive? Here's what he said. One of the singers. You have to put all of your concentration into opening your heart to the music. You cannot be rivals when you're together making music. You cannot be rivals when you're together making music. You cannot be rivals when you're together getting the gospel out. You cannot be rivals when you're together trying to raise your kids. You cannot be rivals when you're together trying to make a marriage. You cannot be rivals when you're together trying to have a church, trying to have a testimony in your community. Fill in the blank. You can't be rivals. And sometimes you have to submit your rights and submit yourself and submit your wounds to the greater good. If you don't, you're going to lose everything. As I told you a while ago, my friends that I grew up, they don't go to church today because some clown felt like he needs to get up and issue whatever he felt like he wanted to at a business meeting in a church. It was wrong then, it's wrong now. And the price will be paid, not just in, in my friend's life, but in, in the children. It's a generational, a generational effect, cascade. It's, it's tragic. When Paul wrote a troubled church, a divided church, the church at Corinth. You ever read these words and just ponder them? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the church at Corinth. He's closing out his words to them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect or be strong. Be fully developed. He's speaking to their spiritual heart there. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. He's not saying get along. That's a, that's a result of He's saying be of one mind. Look at the next expression. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. You know what's connecting there? Be of one mind, live in peace. Now listen to me. He's talking to a group and he said, be of one mind. If you don't have one mind, you're not going to live in peace. If Paula and myself, if we don't have one mind, we're not going to live in peace. There's going to be conflict in our home. If our church family, if we don't have one mind, we're not going to live in peace. Yeah, but you don't know what she said. Let me tell you what she If we don't have one mind, at some point, I've got to say I was wrong or it doesn't matter. Be of one mind, live in peace. There's a section of Scripture on relationships in 1 Peter chapter 3 that, that are a list of things. They're very powerful. They're good for marriages, good for friendships. Helps you, helps you wade through things that aren't important. 
First Peter chapter three and verse eight. Peter says, finally, be all of one mind. I hope you see this emphasis all through Scripture. Be of all of one mind. Having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. The idea there has to be compassionate. Be merciful. And then be courteous. That word means to be friendly. Uh, to be kind. To, to be open-hearted. To be, to be warm-hearted to people. To be, have a mind of compassion. Have a mind of kindness. Have a mind of, com, uh, of mercy. Have a mind of love. Be, be, be of one mind. Everybody's not going to agree. I'm going to tell you something humorous. It's not going to be humorous to you, but, but I'm, I'm sincere when I say it. There's a reason that all through these years... All through these years, that I never talk about football from the pulpit. There's a reason. Never. Now, I don't care if you do, but I never do. Boy, that was a good game. Boy, we really gave it to them. I never do. Never have, never will. Let me give you a couple of reasons. Number one, we didn't do nothing. You sat down on your couch and ate popcorn or ribs or something and watched them do it. You didn't do nothing. Number two, have you ever thought about why you pull for that team? Maybe you went to that school. Maybe you didn't. Maybe your daddy told you to pull for them. That's good and fine. That's fine. And number three, is it, is it worth losing friendships or fighting over? Now, I, I, I wouldn't fight over it, but I know people that do. Well, I'm just teasing and, you know, we just have fun. It don't like any fun to me. Now, we really got y'all on that play. You didn't do nothing. You didn't do nothing. You didn't do anything. You were sitting down. What do you mean, we? You didn't do anything. You know, if my friend is hurting, why, why do I want to do this? I got gotcha. you. Now you say, well, preacher, you just don't understand. I guess I don't. I guess I don't understand. But as a pastor, but even more than a pastor, as a friend, and my wife knows this is the truth. I just don't see, this is for me. Now if you do this, it's Okay. But for me, I just don't have any merit. I don't have any joy in it. Because there's a, group, there's a group of people, not just as a pastor, but with other people. Now you say, what, do you just sit there like a knot on a log? Well, not always. I get excited when the team I pull for wins. And most of you know who it is. My brother played there. But... I, we got bigger fish to fry. Lingering disappointments, anger, division, they're evidences of spiritual problems. You, you don't solve these at a motivational or organizational level. Listen, you cannot legislate love. And I see this in churches. I see this with pastors, young pastors. I try to help them. You cannot implement rules and create unity. You will get along. 
<laughs> call, call me later. Tell me how that worked. It's not going to work. You have to crucify the flesh. Somebody has to die to self. They need the Holy Spirit of God upon them. You, you can't structure that. There must be repentance. There must be change. There must be revival. Listen to this statement. The root of division is selfishness. And the root of selfishness is pride. The root of division is selfishness. And the root of selfishness is pride. The Bible says in James chapter 4 verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you. Where does all this conflict come? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members, in your own bodies, in you. The greatest problem I have in this church is me. The greatest problem in the Johnson family is me. The greatest problem in our marriage is me. It's me. That's what he's saying here. Look at this, James 3.14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and don't lie against the truth. Be honest about this. This wisdom, because there's a wisdom that comes from the enemy and there's a godly wisdom. This is not godly. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but it's earthly, that's the world. Sensual, that's the flesh, and devilish. And here's what it looks like. For we're envying, strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. Confusion is fighting, disorder, arguing. You go into a home, counsel a couple, and they won't even look at each other. It's, it's, it's James chapter 3. Bitter envying and strife. There's no unity. There's no unity. No, I'll, I'll do it my way. That's my classroom. I was reading about, uh, they did a survey in churches, and one of the biggest problems to keep churches from growing is ownership. The members have ownership. And they said uh, people come in and guests come in and people tell them, hey, that, that's my pew or that's my seat. You say, oh, that's funny. People don't do that. People have done it here. They've done it in this room. I know they have. We had a young man that got saved here and he was excited. He brought his Bible and he was growing. He didn't know the, doesn't know the rules. He didn't know how to play the game. He's just a new Christian. He comes in, he just grabs a seat like you do. You probably did. Lady came in and she stood there with her Bible. She looked at him. You're in my chair. Actually, it was a pew then. You're in my seat. He just looked at her like, what? You're in my seat. Okay, he just scooted down. He lasted three months. 
envying, strife, there's confusion, there's every evil work. I mean, you think at some point, is this, is this a lack of common sense or, or is, is this wickedness? What, what is this? Proverbs 13.10, only by pride cometh contention. But with the well-advised is wisdom. And the second part there means pride doesn't listen to counsel. With the well-advised is wisdom. You, you wouldn't be making those mistakes if you listen. Because pride people don't. Only by pride comes contention. But in the early church, what they did, God used them. Because what they did... They were one in heart. Eleven times in 28 chapters, the Bible says, one accord, one accord, one accord. Acts 1.14, they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and with these people, with them. They were in one accord. Acts 2.1, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord. All these it was people. Not a system, not an organization. They were in one accord with people. They had to tolerate one another. Acts 2.46. And they continuing daily in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were with one accord with people. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. One heart and one soul. They were in one accord. They were together. D.L. Moody said, I've never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. Unity is important. It's important to God. It's important to the church. It's important to your family. It ought to be important to you. Psalm 133 and verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together, to dwell together, because it's not always easy. How pleasant. The word pleasant there comes from, the, from a chord in a piano. It means it's a beautiful chord. That sounds nice. When you're in an environment, you say, this is such a pleasant environment. It's because there's, there's harmony there. Another musical idea. Pleasant harmony. It's beautiful. This feels, this sounds good. But when you're in a place of conflict, whether it's a, you're out to eat with someone and there's harshness, or you say, I, I want to leave. I don't feel good here. I'm not comfortable here. Oh, God, God, help our fellowship not be that way. But listen, if your home is that way, it's going to bleed over in our church. Ephesians 4 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't create, the Holy Spirit does. But we endeavor to keep it, to protect it. When we fail to keep it, we lose the peace, the bond of peace. We need to work at it. Apologize when you do wrong. Endeavor to keep it. Johnny Erickson taught us, she turned 73 last week, I think. She said, believers are never told to become one. We already are one. We're expected to act like it. Proverbs 6, verse 16. These six things that the Lord hates, seven are an abomination unto him. Abomination is a 
has the, the special object of God's hatred. Notice these things that God hates. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaks lies. And notice the seventh one. He that sows discord among brethren. Notice the word sows. It it means, has the idea of sowing seeds that come to harvest later because they're going to come to harvest in conflict and bitterness. God said, this is is more than mischief to me. This is an abomination to me. I, I, I hate that. Don't you sow that around me. Let me show you in closing. Let me show you how serious God takes this. Mark. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. He says, brethren, mark them which cause divisions. The word mark there means to clearly identify. You know, there's three primary, not the only one, but there's three primary reasons you have church discipline. One is immorality. Two is division, and three is is false doctrine, false teaching. But here he said, here's division. Mark them, mark them, clearly identify. In other words, this is so serious. This is brothers and sisters. So-and-so is causing strife in our body. This is how serious this is. And then he says, avoid them. The word avoid there means to deviate. It means to to go out of the way. You're not better than anybody. Hey, if it can be done, I can do it. But it means don't spend time with them. You don't catch health, you catch germs. Titus chapter 3 and verse 10, a man that is an heretic... The word heretic means one that causes division. After the first and second admonition, you know, brother, sister, man, you're, you're spreading some negative things. You're, you're saying some lies. You're, you're saying some things ought not be said. After the first and second admonition, reject. The word reject means to be avoided. It's the same idea as Mark chapter 16. I close with this quote by... Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly relationships, speaking of the devil, than we do. I like that since union is strength, union is strength. Satan does his best to promote separation, to keep us apart, suspicion, accusation. And Philippians 2 is the dominant passage on unity. We're going to break it apart in the coming weeks. Again, this is not because we're having problems. This is preventive. So here's my question at the end of the service. Do you value unity? Have you offended someone? Is there someone that you need to apologize to? 
pursue it, protect it. I'm talking about in your church. I'm talking about in your family. Really, I, I press in your family because what you do in your family spills over in your church, even at work. Are you known? Are you known as a talker at work? You shouldn't be. That's a sin. Don't be a talebearer. You be loyal. You be loyal. You be loyal to the person that's not present. If somebody will say something to you about another person, they'll say something about you to someone else. You be loyal to the person that's not present. And are you a Christian? Because he says these things, Philippians 2, that these qualities, they're in Christ, they're of the Holy Spirit. You, you cannot live this kind of a life of, of loyalty and and have these attributes of unity. Because I'm not talking about the world's kind of a, a schmoozy thing where you just get together and, and hug and love for nothing. I'm talking about ha- having unity for things that count. But you can't do this without the Lord Jesus Christ. And pray with me, pray with me for the unity of our homes and for Friendship Baptist Church. Check your spirit. Just check your spirit. God, listen, God wants to preserve our unity. Satan wants to destroy your home and your marriage and your kids. And he wants to destroy our church and other churches, not just our church. And when people come to you with, with things, it's like you get infected with it. And then you have to do something with it. Either you're going to get well with it and, or you're going to spread the infection. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.